Crossway Church Sermon Audio. So, what's with the church sign out front? Uh, Some of us have never known Crossway Church apart from this building, but it was only a little over five years ago that we moved into this building. And as we were in the planning stages of this building, excellent signage out front was a priority. We knew since we're a quarter mile back from the road, and there's a lot of traffic that goes down Barber Street, that we would have an opportunity to communicate with our community what we are about, what we prioritize as a church. And so Dan Garner, who many of you would remember, designed the signs out front, the one sign to, to match the deck supports that we have out back. And we wanted an interchangeable sign, not a sign with cheesy sayings. That's one of my huge pet peeves in life. I think it's counterproductive, but... We wanted to promote events like Christianity Explored and Youth Camp, and especially we wanted to promote our sermon series. And so it took a while. It took actually special permission from the township, but we eventually got our signs. And we printed our famous or infamous Sunday 10 a.m. sign. And we got a fair amount of grief from friends that we are the 10 a.m. church. And we'd have visitors come and say, well, we couldn't say we didn't know when you meet. And all along, we planned to to design and print out signs for our sermon series. We even tried to print out a sign for our Roman series. But in the providence of God, uh, that didn't happen. And so the very first sermon series sign we get announces to our community, in defense of authority. (laughs) So what was your reaction when you pulled up to the church a few weeks ago and saw that sign? Did you cringe? I did. I thought, wow, that'll, that'll get some notice. <laughs> and in my responsibilities here, I've had a fair bit of interactions with folks at Penn Manor. And so I was talking to a guy there the other night, and he was commenting on the questions that he's received about our sign. And he's not a member here. So why is that? What, what is it about authority that elicits such strong reactions? And why on earth would we want to preach in defense of it? Does authority even need defense? Isn't authority the problem? Authority. Such a scary word. Well, today we're going to look at authority in our one another relationships. Every day, in every moment, we are engaged with authorities. There's not an authority-free moment in our lives whether we're talking about parent and child or employer-employee or stoplights or the law of gravity or in the church or in the home or a thousand other ways. And all of those moments are undergirded and informed by the most foundational authority of all. As Christians, we know and love and serve the God who created and sustains all things and who looks over creation and says, Mine. Psalm 24.1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. All that exists, exists according to God's will and for God's glory. That's the dynamic and the tension and really the electrifying possibility that makes our lives meaningful and purposeful and eternally significant. So before we look at authority and how we interact with one another, I want to begin with the question of motivation. And I want to answer one simple question. Is authority good? And I want to give a clear biblical answer. Yes, authority is good. 
It's a truth that's both implicit and explicit all throughout Scripture. We see it, for example, in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Authority is good because it's given by God. Authority is good because it's the structure instituted by God. It's the manifestation of his sovereign rule. There are pragmatic reasons that authority is good. So think of something as simple as a stoplight and the chaos that it generally prevents. But fundamentally, authority is good because God is good. So that raises problems for us if we don't view authority as good. And now I'm not talking about misuse of authority yet. As with every good gift of God, authority can be, and all too often is, misused and even abused. But misuse of authority is not solved by abandoning it altogether. The abuse of a good thing doesn't make that thing any less good. It just reveals and confirms the reality of sin in our world. So we will look at how to appeal to and even to resist at times the authorities before we close. But it's very important that we understand and affirm the goodness of authority. Because all of us are called both to exercise and to submit to authority in our lives. And if we don't see it as a good gift from God, we'll neither submit to nor exercise authority in faith. If we don't view authority as a good gift from God, all of our interactions with authority will be sinful. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's Romans 14.23. That's a point I want to emphasize today. And I want it to be clear from the outset. If you don't see authority as good, you will not submit in faith to God's authority, either directly to God or through the agents that he appoints. And you won't exercise authority in faith. And then one further point. As Pete discussed in the first sermon of this series, the fall was a fundamental and thorough rejection of the authority of God, which means it was a charge against the goodness of God. Do we recognize the implications of that? When presented with the good and perfect authority of their loving father and creator, Adam and Eve said, in essence, what we used to say in fifth grade, you're not the boss of me. So if we take seriously the authority and the historical reliability of the Bible, we have to recognize that the rejection of authority, the rebellion against authority, is what landed us in this mess. It's what caused the problems that are in this world. And it is an essential part of the fallen nature of man. It's not not an essential part of us as created. It is an essential part of us as fallen. Fallen man, apart from the intervening grace of God, rejects and despises authority in all its forms, and especially the authority of God. And yet, God, in his love and patience, didn't leave us there. The Father sent the Son, empowered by the Spirit, to live and die and rise again to conquer our enemy and to disarm sin and death. So the Spirit works in this world to remove the sinful hearts of rebels, of those who reject God's authority, and to grant us new hearts that are spiritually alive and sensitive to the truth of the goodness of God's authority and grace. 
And as the Spirit works in us, He works conviction of sin. He works a recognition, a conviction of our rebellion against God's good authority. And He works humility and faith. He causes us to turn in faith and recognize Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And that last word, Lord, is what gets at the heart of the Christian's disposition to authority. Because if Jesus is our Lord, then we've begun the process of rightful submission to authority that will one day culminate in his return and in our final redemption and glorification and the establishment of a perfect kingdom of true righteousness and goodness and justice and joy and glory in the new heavens and the new earth. And at his return, Paul tells us, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, 10 to 11. So do you see how authority is everywhere? The world is supercharged with authority. And do you see the importance of affirming with your heart and mind that authority is good and from God? Well, here's what I believe God is calling us to this morning. In humble submission to the glorious authority of God, exercise authority for the good of one another. You've got to have both parts of that equation. In humble submission to the glorious authority of God, exercise authority for the good of one another. And we're going to unpack the nature of authority and how it interacts with our roles in three points. Uh, Authority exists on a continuum. Authority includes confrontation and consolation. And authority is for our good. So authority exists on a continuum. Years ago, I was serving um, not overseas because there's not a sea between us and Mexico. So over land in Mexico. And I have a commercial driver's license. So I was driving a a missions team, a bus full of uh, wild American teens and their parents and leaders through the crazy streets of Monterey, Mexico. And if you've been to Mexico, that you, you know that traffic laws are a little more open to interpretation down there. And so a three-lane road could carry four or even five vehicles wide at the same time. And since most of these Americans were from the north woods of Minnesota and Wisconsin, they weren't quite used to that level of adventure. So we're, we're driving these roads, and cars are just passing within inches of us and cutting in front of us. And pedestrians come out of nowhere, and there's an occasional goat and chicken. And, and as we're going along, people are getting... Afraid, and, and they start to cry out, there, watch out, or turn, stop, you know. And I was young, which is no excuse, but I was growing increasingly agitated. And as we went along, and the frequency and the volume of these helpful suggestions increased, I finally reached my limit, and I yelled, who's driving this bus? Now, you need to know. Uh, My wife has gotten an ungodly amount of mileage out of that line through the years. Uh, And and that was not my proudest moment. But it was true. I was driving the bus. I had the authority and the responsibility for those folks. And I took it seriously. I wasn't hot-dogging. I wasn't messing around. We just happened to be driving an exceptionally large vehicle in exceptionally challenging conditions. And frankly, it worked. The rest of the trip was far more peaceable. So, so if you want to try that with your passengers on the way home, I just I leave that to your conscience. 
So it's, it's a silly story, but it illustrates the truth that authority exists on a continuum. As the driver of the bus, I had sole authority for the operation of the bus and, and for its safety. The parents and the leaders had some responsibility and authority for the kids. But for my passengers, the perceived danger that we were in meant that my authority needed to be challenged or at least supplemented. And it's not unlike what happens at sporting events all the time. The authority of the ref is subject to constant critique and scrutiny and appeal. So you want to talk about hard-hitting appeals, you know, applications on authority. For you sports lovers, have you ever thanked God for the referees in your life? Does their authority come from God? Do you see it as good? Parents, it's a great application to teach your children. God has put this ref, this ump in this game for your good, and he represents the authority of God to you. Do you see it as good, or is it something to be challenged and screamed down at every opportunity? So as Pete pointed out several times the past few weeks, the only absolute authority in our lives is God. All other authorities are themselves under the authority of God. They derive their authority from God. They exercise authority by God. And they will give account to God for how they've led. At the top of every authority structure in this world is God himself. He rules over it. He constrains it and defines it. He decrees its appointed purposes and limits. And we see that in today's passage. These first two verses are concerned with the authority of pastors. Christians are told to respect and esteem those who labor among them, who are over them, and who admonish them. And Pete preached on pastoral authority last week, so I'm not going to belabor that, but I want to make one especially important connection that may not be obvious to us because it's so quickly and artfully expressed. The authority of pastors is, for lack of a better term, specifically located. They labor among you. They are over you in the Lord. And so those three spatial terms, among, over, and in, help us to understand the continuum of authority. Pastors are among the church. We are, first of all, Christians. We don't exist in a special class. And within that class of Christians, there are some entrusted with real authority. Pastors are over you. But it's not undefined and unconstrained authority. It's in the Lord. The authority of pastors is subordinate to Jesus And it's exercised in the faithful teaching and application of God's word. It's authority defined by the word of God. Um, So we see a hierarchy, which is a terribly scary word in our culture, of Jesus, pastors, members. That's the divinely given structure of authority in the church. But then the passage continues. Paul instructs the brothers, which means all Christians... Brothers and sisters, all of us are included in this instruction to admonish, encourage, help, be patient, and do good. So these are instructions for all Christians, and they apply in our relationships with one another. As pastors, we are your leaders, and we are your brothers. We're both over you and among you. So, for example, you ought to be willing to apply these verses to me, as I need to be willing to apply them to you. There is mutual authority in Christian relationship. So let me illustrate a different way. 
In a Christian marriage, the husband's the head of the wife. He's to love and lead his wife. And she's to respect and to submit to him. But those dynamics are not ultimate. They're not absolute. If both husband and wife are Christians, then she is his sister in Christ. She will need to admonish, encourage, help, be patient, and more with her husband. All Christians have authority in the lives of one another. And it's authority from God's word. It doesn't obliterate the other authority dynamics in our lives, such as pastor member, husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee. It doesn't obliterate those things. It complements it. So my children and my wife will point out sin in my life. You brothers and sisters have pointed out sin in my life. Ultimately, as that's done in humility and faith toward God, it is love for me. It's aimed at my good and at God's glory. So we ought to encourage and expect those kinds of interactions with one another. They ought not to be the bulk of our interactions. We need to excel in enjoying one another and in pointing out evidences of God's grace in one another. But they are an important part and a necessary dynamic in what it means to walk in fellowship with one another. So do you have that category? Do you welcome the input of your brothers and sisters in your life? Do you look to them and desire them to help you to grow as a disciple? Or have you cut yourself off from this significant and God-given means of growth? And then on the flip side, do you look to bring God's grace, to bring his word to bear on the lives of your brothers and sisters? Are you willing to have that potentially difficult conversation out of love for someone? This is a large part of what it means for us to be in fellowship as a church. So notice the continuum here. No authority on earth is ultimate except for God. Your ultimate submission is to him. So if any other authority is calling you to sin against God, it is right to humbly appeal and properly defined to resist. But there's there's another very important application and implication of this continuum of authority. Our submission to authorities is submission to God and his authority. It's a fruit of the Spirit's work in us because He commands it. Have you noticed that the Bible is full of commands to submit to authority? So we might say it this way. Submission to authorities is a mark of Christian maturity because it reflects our submission to God. We can uh, assert our love for and submission to God all that we want, but if it's not reflected in how we relate to one another and how we relate to God's agents in our lives, it rings hollow. If we are truly submitted to God, it will be reflected in our submission to the other authorities in our lives. The God who commands us to submit to him also commands us to submit to his authorities, which requires us to view authority as good and from him. That is the only way that we can submit in faith. It's funny, I feel like I'm saying authority every other word. And it's such a jarring word. It's just, isn't it? It gets right at our hearts. So I said it this way at a ladies' meeting a few years back. A wife's submission to her husband is not the point. It's not the end goal. It's not the the pinnacle of wifeness. Instead, it's a fruit of her submission to God. And we can interchange every other relationship in that. A child's submission to their parents, 
a member's submission to the pastors, an employee's submission to an employer, a citizen's submission to the government is not the point. It's not the end goal. It's a fruit of our submission to God. It reveals the depth or the shallowness of our submission to God. That's the continuum of authority. So think of it in application in today's text. Who do you want to admonish, encourage, and help you? Folks who are submitted to God first or those who resist and despise authority? Proper submission to God is the ground for the other Christian virtues. We, we come to God on his terms or not at all. So I want to close this point with two appeals. First, if, if you have not submitted to the authority of God, if you've not agreed with God's verdict that you are a sinner in rebellion against him, that you deserve his wrath, this is the moment to turn. He holds out to you indescribable mercy and grace. He holds out true forgiveness and a cleansed heart and peace with him and security to the depth of your soul. And that comes... In submission. In Psalm 95, David tells us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Submission to God means not trying to clean ourselves up, not trying to make ourselves more presentable to God. It means turning from self-rule and running to the open arms of an incredibly merciful and loving Father. It means agreeing with him that you are a sinner who needs a Savior And seeing Jesus as that Savior who died for your rebellion. Receive his mercy. And secondly, if you're a Christian but you view authority with suspicion as a bad thing, I have to call you to repent. Because if you view authority with suspicion and even contempt, you're despising how God has structured this world. You can't walk in faith toward God and despise authority. Of course authorities in this world fail. Of course they're not perfect. And still God commands us to submit. He commands us to trust him and to obey the authorities. Your submission to God is the ground of your submission to any other authority. So repent of pride and independence. Know the grace and forgiveness of God and seek to walk humbly before him and before those he has placed as authorities in your life. So in humble submission to the glorious authority of God, exercise authority for the good of one another. This brings us to our second point. Authority includes confrontation and consolation. So in the first message of this series, Pete defined authority as the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. So the umpire calls balls and strikes. The father leads the family. But when we look at that dynamic of authority square on, that ability and necessity to decide, to give orders, to enforce, aren't we inclined to view it as somehow negative? So again, before we talk about how authority may go wrong, we have to remember that it reflects and expresses the character of God. God has the power or right to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce obedience. He is truth and love. And for his people, there is peace and security and abundance and blessing and rest under his authority. So when we talk about authority, including confrontation, we have to understand it 
in relation to God. The commands of these verses verses to admonish, encourage, help, be patient, do good, as well as many other verses in the New Testament. This is just one of dozens of passages that speak this way with words like rebuke and exhort and love and comfort. These all exist and are defined by God himself. In order for us to be faithful to these verses and to exercise authority in the lives of one another, we need to know God. We need to know his truth and his word. And we need to know his grace. This is one significant area where authority confronts and constrains us. The terms don't exist in a vacuum. They don't mean whatever we want them to mean or whatever feels right in a given situation. They only work when God is the one defining them. So how do we encourage and help one another? If our concern is for God's glory, and if we allow God's word to define terms, to define reality, then we can truly help each other. So we need to know what to do and when. If you encourage the idle or the rebellious, you're not loving them, you're not serving them, you're strengthening them in rebellion against God. And if you admonish the faint-hearted, you're exasperating them. This is a tall task in front of us, isn't it? We need biblical categories and biblical clarity. We need God's grace. The question isn't whether or not the church will be a perfect community with perfect counsel and perfect love. That's just not going to happen this side of Jesus' return. The question is, are we a people, both individually and corporately, where God's word and God's grace have real weight and application? Is the gospel preached and practiced? Are we seeking to grow in love and holiness? And here I want to say, yes, by God's grace, we are such a community. Over the 15 years that I've been here as a member and almost 10 years as a pastor, you have been a massive means of grace to me and my family. I understand the grace of God better. I love Jesus more. I I understand his word better because of you, because of walking in fellowship with you, because of your faithfulness to your Savior. And, And as I look around, I see men and women and children who love God, who love his church, and who understand grace and are living lives characterized by obedience to Jesus' great command, which is to love God and to love our neighbors. As I've taken over responsibility for care groups the past six months, I've seen even more how our care group leaders are laying down their lives sacrificially for you, loving you, investing in you, caring for you, praying for you. As I interact with our deacons regularly, I see these men loving the church, caring, providing real care and comfort to those in need in times of crisis. As I walk with Doug and Pete every day, I see men who love the gospel and love Christ's church. So is all of this boasting? Well, perhaps. But I think it's boasting biblically defined. This glorifies God. It testifies to the reality of the gospel. These are fruits of the Spirit's work in us. They glorify our Father. Our Lord is faithfully and patiently building his church. His faithfulness to his promises is our great hope and comfort. 
So as, as people seeking to be faithful to our God and to his word, we realize that we are under authority. We want to submit to God's word. And his word tells us that authority includes confrontation and consolation. And some of the connections are obvious, right? There is authority in admonishing the idol. If you're lazy and given to self-indulgence, then God's word and God's people admonish you. Work hard. Be faithful to what God has called you to do, to the responsibilities that he's given you. This is the authority of God's word. And if you're faint-hearted, we encourage you. Your Savior loves you. God's people love you. Don't despair. Don't sink in self-pity. By the authority of God, we encourage and exhort you to lift up your eyes to the King of grace who has adopted you and is with you and is for you. Psalm 56.9 captures this in an amazingly succinct way. It says, This I know, that God is for me. If you're a Christian and you're discouraged by the authority of God's word, we encourage you. God is for you. He's at work in your life. Trust him. If you're faint-hearted, you need authoritative truth on which to stand. So don't fixate on your circumstances or on your resources to try to solve your problem. Lift up your eyes to the Lord. Consider the love and faithfulness of God. Consider that you're surrounded by the people of God and be humble. Bring them in to your struggles. Let them encourage you to walk with and love you. I see it happening in so many relationships. I see men and women loving each other in costly ways, investing, encouraging looking to sustain by God's grace. That is an awesome display of the redeeming power of the gospel. So do you understand how that connects with authority? These aren't hollow words. You're not going to find them on an inspirational poster. This isn't Oprah. This is truth. This is soul-steadying, life-defining truth. It's a rock to stand on when the entire world is shaken. And it's where we stand as Christians. When we fall short in our sinfulness, let us admonish one another. And when we're weary and faint-hearted, let us encourage one another. Let us, by the grace of God, be patient one another and do good to one another. We need each other to walk in faith every day through many trials and sorrows. We need the grace that comes in the church. We need others to lovingly hold up the mirror of God's word so that we can be corrected or encouraged, or comforted, and sometimes rebuked. How often, pastorally, we face desperate situations where folks have withdrawn and isolated themselves and cut themselves off from the means of grace that God intends fellowship with one another to be. It's funny, if the world knows one Bible verse, they know Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. And remarkably, this verse comes after two solid chapters of moral instruction that include many, many sayings that our world would find incredibly judgmental. Jesus condemns anger and lust and selfishness and unbiblical divorce and greed and showy external righteousness and many other things. That's why it's so vital that our interactions with one another be conformed to the word of God. It's not judgmental to condemn lust. Because Jesus condemns lust. He makes the judgment. 
to say to the brother who's enslaved to pornography, you must repent and turn to God, is not judgmental. It's loving. It's faithfulness to God and to his word and to that brother. And so we have to recognize that some of what Jesus condemns, the world also condemns. They agree. Almost no one wants to defend the rapist, for example. Though I'm sure there's some philosopher somewhere who's arguing for that. But much of what Jesus condemns, the world affirms and praises. And if we align ourselves with Jesus, we will incur their scorn and condemnation. Isn't that what we're witnessing from certain segments of our society right now? If you don't just go along with the latest sexual craze, you are a repressive, puritanical, bigoted hater. So it requires courage, doesn't it, to stand on God's word humbly and lovingly and faithfully. It requires courage to face the scorn and condemnation of the world, to insist on biblical standards of truth and justice, to not just jump on whatever the latest internet outrage is. And that's what God calls us to do. Know his word, brothers and sisters, and hold to it faithfully and humbly. If your ideas and truth and justice are in line with what everyone thinks, we're in trouble. There's a very interesting and pithy proverb that speaks to this. It's Proverb 28.5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. In a very real sense, the world cannot understand justice because they lack the fear of the Lord. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs tells us, then as we know and love God, and as we sit humbly under his word, one of the fruits of that will be a growing uh, clarity and understanding on truth and justice. This also means that if we're not willing to take an unpopular stand... We're in trouble. It was our Lord, after all, who said in John 15, 18 to 20, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If we would believe in the authority of God and his word, then we have to have a category of being hated by the world. We certainly don't look for it or desire it, and we're not talking about being foolishly offensive here. But fidelity to God, faithfulness to God, will often be seen as the height of arrogance and bigotedness and hatred in the world. If we're going to have true confrontation and true consolation with one another, this is the price that we will have to pay. And inasmuch as we know and love God, we will be willing to pay it. So in humble submission to the glorious authority of God, exercise authority for the good of one another. And that brings us to our third point. Authority is for our good. In this final point, I want to get into some applications and implications of what we've been examining. But before I do, I want to make a couple obvious points from the text. If we view and engage authority rightly, we maximize the good it affects in our lives. And we see this at two points in this text. First, rightful submission to authority produces peace. At the end of verse 13, after Paul asks the Thessalonians to respect and esteem their leaders, he says, 
Be at peace among yourselves. He's linking those two concepts. How much striving and conflict would be diminished or even eliminated in our hearts and lives if we would view authority as good and gladly submit. If much of our engagement with authority is critique and resistance, there will not be peace either for us or for the authorities. That's true in every sphere, in marriage, in parenting, in government, in work, in the church. Um, I see this with my children all the time. When one child sins against another child, and the child who's been sinned against plays the role of judge, jury, and executioner, they usurp authority, right? They take authority that's not theirs, and, and it's at least a tongue lashing, if not some sort of retribution, right? It never goes well. That's not their job. Daddy and mommy are there with authority to, to lead and govern in, in that situation. And anytime that authority is taken illegitimately, it never goes well. And I'll usually ask them, are you the police? Are you mommy? Are you da-? No. Then come, come. God has given you authorities. It's good. Come to us. Let us love you both and care for you both and lead you through this. That's not your job. Right? So glad, God-fearing submission produces peace. It avoids a lot of unnecessary conflict. Secondly, verse 15 tells us, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And on the one hand, that's a general principle, right? But on the other, this follows right on the heels of the urging to admonish and encourage and help, etc. By properly exercising authority in each other's lives, we're actually aiming for mutual good. We're aiming for God's glory. And this demonstrates a reverse principle that I wish I had more time to develop. If you're in a, in a position of authority by God, and it's, it's very important that we recognize that. So if you're a husband or a parent or an employer, if, if, if you have responsibility ordained by God and you fail to exercise that authority, those who are under you will likely flounder. It may seem loving to not have the conversation, to not confront sin, or to not make the hard decisions, or to not have the hard consequences. But in the long run, you're actually despising those under you when you don't exercise the authority that God has called you to. This has massive implications for husbands, for example. Men, you must love and lead your families to God, and especially when it's hard. One of the glaring problems in our society is the lack of leaders who have the courage to stand and to take an unpopular stand, to to do the hard things. And within the church, the nice Christian phrase of servant leadership has become so unbalanced that it's considered unchristian to even lead in some situations. That must not be, brothers. Love and lead your families. Cry out for the grace of God and have the hard conversation. Lay down your lives for the good of those God has entrusted to you. So let's turn now and consider how do we handle authority when it's wrongly exercised? How do we relate to that? Given that authority is from God, it's for our good, what are we to do when the authorities in our lives seem to be against us or even commanding us to sin? How do we handle that misuse of authority? Well, these are challenging questions. They require humility, 
and faith and wisdom. And there's a tension here, isn't there? In, in seeing authority as good and affirming its goodness and walking in faith toward God and saying, hey, this can go wrong and you might need to resist it. Is that a contradiction? I don't think so. God doesn't contradict himself and we see both those dynamics in Scripture. We have to feel that tension. We, we need to cry out to God for wisdom to walk these things through. This isn't just a toss-up. The Bible has quite a lot to say about this topic as well. And this ought not to surprise us because at the heart of the Bible's story is the most outrageous and extreme and egregious case of the abuse of authority against an innocent sufferer ever in the history of the world. So when we struggle with authority, our greatest need is faith. As with any hardship in in this life, the issue of faith is always paramount. When times are hard, the initial and the understandable response is to complain or despair or blame. Why this? Why me? Why now? Why didn't you do, do, do? Yet we know that God is sovereign and that every circumstance in our lives, including our hardships, is according to his sovereign decree. We have to be careful not to confuse the issue by, by just calling everything good, everything sunshine and roses. No, when something is bad or wrong or sinful, call it what it is. Deal with reality. But faith also requires us to remember and to then to believe and act accordingly that God is with us and God is good. That his plans and purposes are never thwarted, ever. Well, how do we do this? Ultimately, because our Savior did. When he was reviled and mistreated, he engaged with his Father in faith, even pleading for the cup to be taken from him. And he obeyed. Is it hard? Absolutely. But it's also the path to which we've been called. We follow a suffering Savior. In a world, and especially in 21st century America, where progress is assumed to be the only option, the call to suffer in faith is not especially welcome. But as I said, the Bible has quite a lot to say about this. And so consider 1 Peter 2, 13 to 24. Sorry, that's so small. Be subject for the Lord's sake. And notice, notice the interplay of authority and suffering and faith. Okay? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Don't you love statements like that? Just what does God want me to do? This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you, when you do good and suffer for it, for you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So notice a few things from this text. Jesus left us an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are explicitly called to follow the example of our suffering Savior. And he didn't just obey. He obeyed humbly. He did not revile in return. He did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we're suffering unjustly, we have a God who sees all and will judge justly. These truths are absolutely vital if we're going to walk in faith and if we're going to suffer in faith. And one more thing, don't don't miss the importance of that final phrase. By his wounds you have been healed. If Jesus had not obeyed his Father by suffering unjustly at the hands of the authorities, there would be no healing, no forgiveness, no salvation for us. God's purposes are never thwarted. We must entrust ourselves to him. So the great issue in our suffering is faith. Will we trust God? Then, and I want to be especially clear here, the call to Christians is not just suffer. Just be passive. Just suffer. I began with faith because all too often we can miss it, but Christians are not to be passive sufferers. Quite the opposite. We're to be very active in our suffering. And the first and foremost and important activity is faith. If we're not trusting God, we can't think rightly. We won't engage rightly. We won't act rightly. But if we face our sufferings with faith, we position ourselves to act righteously, whether that means suffering or appeal or even resisting authority. So how do we do that? How do we appeal and even occasionally resist in faith? Well, the Bible has several examples of faith-filled resistance to authorities, doesn't it? We think of the Hebrew midwives who lied to Pharaoh and saved the lives of those baby boys, including Moses, in Egypt. These two unremarkable women exercised remarkable faith in God. And we even know their names, right? Shipra and Pua. 4,000 plus years later, we know the names of these two common women who defied one of the most powerful men in the world and saved the life of the man who grew to be the deliverer of his nation. They disobeyed authority. But how does Scripture classify their resistance? And this is, as a father of daughters, I'm I'm very aware of the, um, the popular cultural sayings, you know, um, what's the one? Is it um, quiet women never make history or obedient women? I forget that phrase, right? You've got to stand up to the man. You've got to put your voice out there. Well, how, how did these women resist authority? Exodus one seventeen. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So to resist authority rightly, it must be in the fear of God. And it must be a matter of very high significance. In this case, it's literally life and death. 
In Acts 5.29, when Peter and the apostles were commanded not to preach the gospel, they said, we must obey God rather than men. There's a strong, though limited, case for resistance to authority in Scripture. And the two clear categories that I see are life and death and faithfulness to the gospel. But, but most cases of our uh, challenging interactions with authority don't involve absolute resistance. Far more often, it involves humble appeal. If an authority in your life is calling you to a questionable item, let alone to disobey God, it is right to appeal humbly. It's right to go respectfully, making clear that you value the authority, that you want to follow them, but that you're constrained by conscience or by God's word. If it's governmental injustice, there might be a legal appeal. If it's a, a husband calling a wife to sin or to cover up sin, it can include an appeal to the pastors or to the civil authorities in certain cases. But in every case... Our disposition, the disposition of faith, is to say that authority is good and we're only resisting in this instance because we are constrained in our allegiance to God. So there's many other situations uh, and examples that require wisdom and patience and faith and we can't obviously cover them all. But I want to close with an example that may raise some more questions, but it has the virtue of being explicitly addressed in Scripture. So what's a wife to do when her husband is leading the family sinfully? I'm not talking about simple disagreement or even with the failure to do all that he could do to lead the family. I'm, I'm referring to persistent and sinful failure. We see such a situation in 1 Samuel 25, and you may want to turn there with Abigail and Nabal. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, though I'd encourage you to do that later today. Just go read the chapter and, and consider what you observe in the character of of all these characters. So I'm just going to hit a few verses. First, if we look at verse 3, it's 1 Samuel 25, verse 3. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So here we have a godly woman married to a man who, although he belonged to the people of God, he was a Calebite, a descendant of Caleb. He was ungodly. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that David and his men were fleeing from Saul, who was the king and also David's father-in-law, and he was bent on David's destruction. And so while David and his men are in the wilderness hiding, they come across Nabal's herds and they protect his shepherds and they protect his sheep as they grazed. And after a season of this, David makes an appeal. He makes a request to Nabal. He said, Would you, you know, it's, it's time for harvest, it's time for shearing, it's time to get some funds flowing in after all the outgo, could you take some of that and provide for me and my young men who have performed this service for you? It doesn't seem that there's a requirement that Nabal would do so. They hadn't entered into some sort of formal business arrangement, but it wasn't an unreasonable request either. David was saying, in effect, we've watched out for you and benefited you. Could we receive some consideration in return? And Nabal, for his part, was harsh and badly behaved, as verse 3 said. He insults and despises David, and he incurs David's wrath. And so Nabal's servant hears about this and goes to Abigail and describes the situation in verses 14 to 17. He says, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They, they were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. 
Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So again we see the character of Nabal. He railed at them. He's a worthless man. No one can speak to him. No one can reason with him. And disaster is imminent. What is Abigail to do? Well, some would say, you're his wife, and he made a decision, so submit. But that's not what Abigail does. She works within the authority and responsibility that she has to intercede for the good of her family and servants. She gathers provisions and instructs the servants. Notably, in verse 19, she did not tell her husband Nabal. And then she goes and talks with David, and she is incredibly wise and skillful with him as well. So look at verses 25 to 26 as she addresses David. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. So Nabal means worthless or foolish. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So David was bent on exercising authority unjustly. He had condemned Nabal and he was going to murder him. But the Lord used Abigail to intercede and she called David to righteousness. She acted in faith and called David to do likewise. Look at verses 30 and 31. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And how does David respond to this appeal? The next two verses. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. And then the story plays out from there. So Nabal goes and he gets drunk, which further demonstrates his worthless character. And Abigail waits until he's sobered up to tell him how she saved his life from death. And at that point, his heart dies within him. And ten days later, he's dead. And then it resolves in verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Because Abigail trusted God and acted wisely, she was able to influence David to do the same. And the Lord resolved the situation. So briefly, what do we learn from this? I have just three brief points. First, and obviously we live in a sinful and rebellious world. And the evidences are all around us and even in our own hearts. So Nabal was a worthless man who demonstrated it over and over again. David was a godly man. He's called a man after God's own heart. But even David was bent on evil use of authority. Second, God uses faith-filled, humble, submissive resistance. And that's a paradox, isn't it? Submissive resistance to redeem desperate situations. Abigail doesn't despair and withdraw. And she doesn't say, okay, I'm just going to blow this all up. She acts wisely and humbly. 
And she's concerned with righteousness on every front. She is the ultimate example here. And then David joins her. He repents from his sinful anger and doesn't take vengeance but entrusts Nabal to God. And then they both witness the Lord's deliverance. And then third, God is not mocked. It seems obvious that there were years of hardship for this woman with Nabal. He wouldn't be described the way he was without years of demonstrated character. He seems to have thought of himself as above accountability. He's wealthy and happy. He's indulging himself selfishly. He's despising others. And in a moment, the Lord brought him low. Thankfully, most of us will never face a, disp- a situation this desperate. But there are, will be times where we will need to go above some authority in our lives in order to appeal to other authorities whom God has instituted for our good. If the erring authority fears God, like David did, God will use your appeal to rescue them and to lead them to repentance. If they don't fear God, like Nabal, the Lord will make that plain as well, and they will face his discipline. God is never mocked. Justice in this age is rarely perfect, but on the judgment day to come, as Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14 tells us, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Engaging with authority in this age can be difficult. Rebellion is everywhere, including in our hearts. But if we are submitted to God, if we see authority as his kind gift, then we are positioned both to submit to and to exercise authority righteously and in faith. We must not view authority the way the world does. We know the king. We've been redeemed by his grace. We are called to be agents of his grace in the lives of one another. Therefore, in humble submission to the glorious authority of God, exercise authority for the good of one another. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.